0: Pilot boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I am Mecha Don here with my co-host V.
1: Mamba mentality for life.
0: Today is June twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Thank you, guys, for tuning in. I know you could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. We are still quarantined and social distancing due to the pandemic, but we're still going to figure out a way to bring you a show at all costs. On today's show, we will talk to Maurice Bob of Bleacher Report's NBA and Breaking News team to get some insider information on the different possibilities of an NBA return, The Last Dance, Golden State Warriors, his time in the Army, and thoughts on Kaepernick, what's happening in the country, and much, much more. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Remember now that our Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays, a night early. These donations help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot podcast. And don't forget to grab some wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating and comment on Apple. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? Uh, let go. Let's go. Pilot Boys, we get on up. to the Pilot Boys podcast, we are here with a very special guest, Maurice Bob of Bleacher Report's NBA and breaking news team. Maurice, thank you for joining the show. How you doing?
2: I'm doing well as I can be. I'm looking right. like uh, I need to change my name to uh, Quarantine or Corona Report or something. <laughs> uh, I got no haircut, no no. Just I'm just wow. Yeah. Uh, I never really realized as a man how much I guess maintenance and upkeep you need, but. I'm living proof. Yeah. <laughs> and, how, and
1: how easy it is when you are in quarantine to say, you know what? I'm just not going to do it.
2: <laughs> just screw it. I mean, who's going to see me anyway, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't for this show, I probably wouldn't have had a haircut by now. So, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, we're going to jump right into it, man. You have a very interesting story. Um, obviously, you've done a lot of different things in your life at such a young age, very accomplished, uh, and actually different different walks of life too, not only just the same thing. So we want to talk to you uh, um uh, about a lot of that stuff, we're gonna start kind of by just talking about your journey though uh, your journey as a writer so v v can jump in from here and uh, we'll go from there yeah, All right, Sounds what,
1: good. what what stands out always about you is that you're eclectic, right? Most people focus in on one one area. you are brilliant in the sense that you are able to navigate both the world of sports and music as a writer. um so that's probably my first question is how did you get into get into the idea of writing and then how did you decide that you were going to basically do sports and music because most people don't don't try to go down both paths
2: so um i'll bet if everybody listening if you could go back in your life and pinpoint you'll see that somebody or teacher parent relative friend, somebody told you what your talent was. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a similar story. You know, I remember um, I was going to Bowie State University in Maryland. I had just gotten out of the military and the policy was if I want to be a full time student, I need to be on campus, you know, living on campus in the dorms. And I already had an apartment and you know, I was a grown ass man. So, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to hear that. So basically I had to write a brief paragraph about as to why that I should be allowed to live off campus. Mm -hmm. And I remember I, you know, obviously I can't remember what I wrote, but I wrote my, you know, I made my point Mm -hmm. and, you know, the guy who was also a professor, he said, wow, you made your point. So, you know, succinctly and crisply here, you ever thought about being a writer? And, uh, you know, that kind of went in one ear and out the other. I was just glad I didn't have to live on campus and you know, I could just do my thing. But I remember just kind of reflecting back on that moment, like, wow. OK, I wish I would have, you know, heeded that advice at the time. Uh, so, you know, I came I became a writer late in life. Uh, I got started just kind of writing for free um, on, in various uh, local newspapers, like a defender here in Houston um other places like that and um then my major jump was into the houston chronicle and i wrote about uh you know community news so i remember there's a story that stands out that a uh, boy scout troop they built this awning at his, at their school because students were getting wet going from one building to the next when it rained so they was like, okay, well, why don't we build an awning and that'll solve that problem, you know? So just little, you know, little stories like that to kind of highlight the, the little known, a little man, you know, kind of give them some breathing room. And uh, my foray into sports came with uh, covering high school sports. Um, so at first I was a statistician, so I would go to games and write down how many touchdowns, yards, whatever. And then I broke into the writing, and I remember my major breakthrough was covering the Yates Season where they were blowing people out by 100 points. And uh, I don't know if you recall that they made national news. They were doing full court presses and yeah, yeah, keeping, yeah. The, yeah. keeping the other, team from scoring. And they were beating, yeah. them, blowing them out by 100 points. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> um, but that little time I, I followed them for the whole year. And the thing about sports writing in real time, especially for a newspaper, like right after the game is over, they expect the story. You know, to be written and live so people could read about it and comment and either yay Yates or screw Yates or whatever they want to say. Um, So I had to learn on the fly to write two stories. So at halftime, I'd have a if this team won story or if this team lost story. And I'd build both stories and then just kind of at the end, I'd I'd say, okay, this team's going to win. You know, and it's just kind of plotted out from there. Um, and you then from funny, there, you
0: know what's funny about no, that real quick? You could probably release like uh, alternate history with all those other stories that never got published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be funny, all right, right?
2: <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's crazy because like, uh, as soon as the game's over, the editor's constantly texting you, calling you, "Where's the story? Where's the story?" Right. Like shit, you know. So yeah. I had to come up with a way to, you know, make sure I got the story in on time. But that was a great lesson for me. Uh, to write quickly succinctly get my point across and you know not dilly dally um with how I'm going to say it or what have you um, I think that's the training ground
1: and, and not to pause you right there but I think for me in in as I've gotten to know you and and read your content both obviously on social media and the stuff that you publish is that is what I think is your greatest talent is that you're able to get your point across and, very, very few words, yeah. right? And you make that. complicated points um, very, very efficiently.
2: Oh, cool. Appreciate that. Um, and then with the Chronicle kind of getting notoriety, uh, my name just started getting passed around. And I remember uh, you guys probably know uh, Dayton Thomas. Yep. Uh, you know, editor extraordinaire. That man has touched a lot of careers and, uh, you know, he touched mine. Uh, he got me my first national article in King. Wow. Um, so I started writing for King, uh, Rides. I was an editor-at-large for Rides magazine, Scratch. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, I remember uh, that. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you uh, wrote for yeah. everybody in the country. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then obviously Slam is under the same umbrella. So I moved over to Slam with Ben Osborne and uh, had a great time. You know, a lot of history writing for Slam. And then Ben Osborne went over to Bleacher Report. And that's how I found myself a Bleacher Report. And, you know, kind of here and, here and there, I've done stuff from Rolling Stone to Complex to Vibe to, I mean, mm-hmm. you name it. Uh, your name just gonna kind of gets passed around and people that you've worked for or worked with, they take editor spots and they call you up, hey, I got the story, you know? So it's kind of one of those things where you develop relationships and, uh, you know, if you do good work, you know, your work will speak for itself and, uh, you know, you'll get called on to do different things.
0: Talk to us um, about about Bleacher Report too, because Bleacher Report is, is is a phenomenon, right? I mean, they are they have officially dominated and taken over the game in a lot of ways. And I remember years ago hearing about them, but it was more of kind of like I think like a fan kind of contributor. Yeah, fans were
1: just submitting, yeah. yeah, like voice yeah.
0: type thing. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and then all of a sudden, just it just started dominating. What is it? I guess that you've seen kind of about their culture or maybe even the business model that that makes you think uh, makes them kind of come to the forefront like they
2: have so um i go back you know to the uh to the kind of writer that enjoys seeing your name in print like Mm -hmm. physically holding the copy holding the magazine and looking at your name in there so uh, i think for a model like bleacher report they were the first and very early adopter of online and making sure they get social so uh, for like Instagram and Twitter, they would combine a writer and a comedian and a graphics person to work together mm-hmm. and collaborate and get out great content mm-hmm. on, via Instagram, Twitter, and so forth. And that generated a lot of you know people. Oh, they love the memes, they love the content, they love the All videos right. or whatever the case may be. And that built its own momentum from a grassroots standpoint. And yeah. then they were able to bring over. Very prominent writers, you know, Howard Beck from New York Times and, you know, people like that. So once you bring on writers to that pedigree, that's going to give your brand uh, some significant uh, footprint and foothold on the industry. And, you know, from there, um, you know, like you got House of Hoops and, you know, all these little little, Mm -hmm. uh, offshoot. Uh, Instagram accounts and so forth and so on. They build their brand uh, from a social media standpoint, and I think that's where it's going. Because, uh, like me, you know, I, I used to like write, read magazines and things in a physical nature, but you know, this generation they want to look at it on their phone and they want to see graphics and the latest slam dunk or you know, yeah. that's how people like Zion. Made it to prominence because they want quick highlights and a quick snippet of what's you know what it is and right. and I think Bleacher Report really hammered home that that particular model and that's why it's so popular. Yeah, even
1: in sports, right? Like people don't sit through two and a half hour basketball games; they'd rather watch highlights. And it seems like what Bleacher Report understands is that they move according to the market, and I think that's why they've kind of moved ahead of a lot of the other platforms that still kind of rely on those traditional methods. They seem to understand the market and the changing dynamics of the market much better than some of the older entities.
2: Yeah, and then like, you know, you could literally not watch a game, and just keep up on uh, Bleacher Report's social media accounts, yep. and you can feel like you watched the game because you got yeah. the, you got the major hits, the major top plays, the you know the slam somebody made, or the great pass somebody made, or the game winning shot, whatever the case may be. You'll get that in real time, so it's almost like you you did watch the game. You know, how, and, how uh, is that
1: kind of changing landscape um, that that you're noticing? How has that changed your approach to writing? Um, in producing content, if at all?
2: So, you know, uh, when I started out, you know, my my thing was long form content. So if I had a article uh, in a magazine, it'd be like 5000 words or, you know, 2500 words at the at the least. Now you don't want to go over 800 words um, with a piece online and typically you want to stay around the 500 word to 600 word mark. Uh, and I remember with uh, MTV News, It was even shorter, maybe five hundred. You know, Um, is that because attention
0: spans are shorter now? Pretty much. I think,
2: I think that. But what what people don't understand too is kind of what kind of shifted the market too was the uh, introduction of the blog. So now you got the crowd all writing, and they have various degrees of talent. They might not be able to write at all. You know, they read some of their stuff and like, okay, who who told this guy they could write? But Uh, with so many blogs and and competition for information now you want to get things out quickly and you don't have time for the long form you want to get it out you know as soon as possible or right after a game or right after a play you know whatever the case may be Um, so that's part of the whole breaking news uh, concept you want to get it out you want to be first but you also want to be right Uh, you want to be concise you want to have sources and things like that and one of the kind of the rubs against media these days is, you know, the clickbait uh, argument. Um, You put these things in a headline. I can't tell you how many times when I've submitted a story and I even go back and look at it and like, ooh, who came up with this headline? (laughs) It's it's very clickbaity or just kind of picks one juicy tidbit out of the whole thing. And, you know, um, that's kind of one of the things where I got in trouble with James Harden and his mom. Uh, You know, I wrote a story uh, about his mom uh but it it, it pinpointed some a couple negative things and you know just kind of he wouldn't talk to me for a little while because uh, you know she was kind of upset about it but uh you know i think you know readers or listeners should know that uh writers don't necessarily have any kind of input on the headline that goes out and especially from a social media standpoint because people are trying to get clicks and things like that so you might have one headline on the actual story but if you look at it on Twitter or social media, it has a different you know headline yeah. a more eye catching you know click yeah. type of uh, lead in so yeah. uh that's kind of one of the things that's made us look bad, you know uh, yeah. you know to be honest yeah. uh, but you try to you know try to affect what you can so, But it's,
1: it seems like that's that's an that's an a media culture issue um that you guys are dealing with, right like uh, it seems like there's a battle between true journalism and this idea that we need to put something out that's going to get the clicks and results, right? And it seems like the clicks and results come before the story now in a lot of, a lot of mediums. And that seems to be the, the general issue that we're having even in terms of these clashes that we're having in, in public is people are only reading the headline. They're only reading the 15 second 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 clip. You know, and obviously that's that's creating a unique set of issues. Um, has that changed? Is that is that something that you see in your world from editors? Are they changing, too, and how they approach approach story?
2: Well, I think, you know, first of all, you have to follow the money. So yeah. in traditional, uh, you know, publication, you would have ads in a magazine or in a newspaper. Now those ads are attached to the social content. So in order to get a certain amount of dollars it's not like okay they put out a five thousand dollar ad on a paper yeah now the ads are driven by clicks Mm -hmm. so you have to be able to you know deliver the footprint and the schematics on how many people clicked how many people how much time they spent on a
0: a particular link and so forth music industry the radio industry changed that way too with with, uh, what songs people would decide to play it really came down to the money that they're able to get from advertisers and people had to stay on your station. So it seems like that's happening across all industries a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and that's, you know, I think uh, we're kind of in the middle of the pivot. So it's going to be some mistakes made because you're making yeah. things, decisions on the fly and you're trying to figure it out. Um, and that's that's across the board. Um, you know, even now during COVID, businesses will have to, having to pivot. Okay, should people work from home? What's this Zoom thing about? You know, all yeah. these things trying to keep Uh, productivity and and things to a high level. And so you're going to make mistakes. And, you know, I think, you know, from my industry, there's been a lot of mistakes made. Uh, I I still don't think it's too late to, you know, to fix things and get things back to where, uh, you know, we have integrity and people really have a lot of trust. Um, You know, but then now things are magnified and louder so many people have voices and, mm-hmm. and opinions and like you said they make opinions based on snippets and headline and even read anything so it's just all this sort of noise to drive home this wedge between the information we're trying to get out and the actual receivers of the information they don't yeah. trust it. oh well you know they, they don't trust it before you they even get a chance to read it or think about it right. um so you, you mentioned, you, know,
0: you, mentioned uh, you mentioned opinions and you know, I think that's actually a good segue because we want to get into some some substantive NBA stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you have opinions of what's going to happen with the NBA. Are they going to return? You have, you know, you hear stuff about Kyrie's opinion and you hear stuff about, you know, Lou Williams and uh, KD and all these different situ- people coming out. Um, and some of the stories you're hearing are like, oh, based on things that they're saying and then they're things that you're hearing reported from a conference call and all this type of stuff. What is your impression kind of just as, you know, a person who's involved in the, with the NBA on what's going to happen this season? And what and I guess what the, um, I guess percentages are within the amongst the players in terms of who really wants to play and who, who actually doesn't want to play.
2: So I think uh, uh, one of the important points to kind of remember or remind people of is the world didn't necessarily. Well, at least in America, things didn't really shut down until the NBA shut down. If you go back, uh, you know, once they realize some players had it and they canceled that game and the NBA shut things down, then you, you start to see across the board okay, all of these companies started to shut down, stay home, all these other things. So right. the NBA kind of led the charge in that regard. So this is an opportunity for them to lead the charge in the coming back uh, portion as well. Uh, I think Adam Silver's done a great job with. Uh, putting together a plan that's going to be somewhat conceivable because, you know, the goalpost keeps moving. We don't know anything about this disease or, you know, how it's going to affect people. And, you know, there are various degrees of, um, you know, susceptibility to it. Uh, When you look at the NBA, you have the players, they're healthy and everything else. But what about these coaches who are older, Mm -hmm. Uh, front office people who are older, Mm -hmm. training staff, all these other people who are ancillary, um, personnel around the actual league, you know right. how they might be affected, so there's different you know pockets of um accountability for the players uh, as to as opposed to coaches and things like that and so that in a and then when you take that and put it against where we are right now as far as trying to get social justice and the voices mm-hmm. that have been magnified and actually we're seeing changes in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think players are leery of um, stopping that momentum. So I see mm-hmm. that part of it. I get yeah. that. You know, at the end of the day, money's great. Your career's great. Trophies are great. Championships are great. But, you know, a lot of these players have kids. And, you know, they want to make a, make sure they leave the world a better place for their kids. And yeah. their kids don't have to struggle like they did or face discrimination in whatever form like they did. So right. I can see the kind of um, battle within themselves as far as, okay, do I come back? Yeah, I want to chase a championship, and yeah, it'd be great uh, to give people entertainment and kind of bring some levity, you know, bring some lightheartedness into the levity of the situation. But Mm -hmm. then there's like, okay, well, if we bring all this intention to the league and everybody's watching, does that mean they're going to stop paying attention to – You know, our protesters and the voices we're trying to amplify and the causes we're trying to amplify. So it's a very fine line and double edged sword. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think, you know, the NBA will come back. It's just a matter of when Um, I think, you know, with the Kyries and the Dwights, you know, they make very strong points. uh, But I think they would be satisfied maybe if the NBA was able to push it back a little bit. Uh, and so as opposed to starting July 31st, maybe mid August, and that would maybe give them some sign. Okay, well now we're giving it more time for the protesting movement to have an expanded platform to kind of get some things across, and maybe we okay. can get a few more things across the finish line, and maybe that would help, you know, alleviate you know your concerns in that regard. If that, and then if that also, happened, uh, real ahead. quick, if that
0: if that happened, would they push the, the next season back? You think, or you think they'd you have, have to? Try to start? Okay.
2: Right. They'd have to right now. You know they don't. If you notice, um, the uh, the day of the draft is still kind of up in the air. They they're kind of looking at o- October, but mm-hmm. you know that's still in the air. Um, yeah. So a lot of these things are kind of based on okay, what's the immediate, you know, outcome? When are we going to actually have a season? And I think we've gotten past the point where we're not going to have one. We're going to have one. It's just a matter of when, what players are going to show up. Yeah. Um, and then that's going to that's going to be a huge, uh, you know, point of contention, because yeah. should the top players decide not to play and that's their yeah. right, you know, whether yeah. it be due to COVID or due to, you know, the protesting and civil unrest, mm-hmm. regardless, yeah. if they don't show up now, that takes away from the actual you know the pot of talent, and you know what people want to see, and will it be an asterisk next to whoever wins the right. championship and things like that? Yeah. Uh, so it's so fraught with, you know, uh, various complications. And, and the you know, disease it's itself,
1: too. right? Like what and happens? Oh yeah. What happens if LeBron James contracts COVID wow. during wow. the middle you of know, the Western Conference Finals? <laughs>
2: right. Right. Wow.
1: You know, like right. those, yes. are, those are things that that have to be thought about as well. But I did want to kind of key in on what Lou Williams said, right? About this potentially being a distraction. And we're kind of at the point where this is able to have the platform it has because a lot of the distractions that Americans normally have to kind of avoid these serious issues aren't there. So it's almost like it has elevated the opportunity for the message and this movement to have life, right? What do you think about There's a debate, Mecca and I have had this debate as well, about whether it's more powerful for them to come back and use that huge multi-billion dollar global platform to consistently fight for change outside of playing the game? Or is it a bigger sign to say, you know what, we're just not going to play basketball. We're not playing until you guys resolve this issue. I wanted to see where you kind of fell on that spectrum or what what you believe.
2: So, uh, I, I you know, I kind of believe more so that if they didn't play, it would have more more of an effect mm-hmm. because you have people clamoring for any kind of, you know, uh, break from and not just, you know, the civil unrest. You know, people have been out of work. They've been stuck at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, their anxiety levels have been very high due to the, you know, fear of this virus or unsurety uh when it comes to you know what it might do how it might affect people and there are you know real consequences you know i have four family members that had it two of them had to go to icu they you know they lived uh thank god but you know there are people who didn't didn't live like call that any towns mother you know so there's some very concrete um you know examples of the severity of this you know time we're living in but you know i think I think what it would do is if they just say okay we're not coming back until x y and z mm-hmm. you know that would put pressure because and it would also put pressure on the owners mm-hmm. because you have to remember the NBA owners have, we have some of the richest owners in all of sports. Yeah. You know, if you combine the collective wealth of all of these teams, you're in the upper hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Steve Ballmer mm-hmm. himself is, is worth over 50, mil, 50 billion, mm-hmm. you know, so, and he's, his team is in high condition for, you know, a championship. So yeah. he's going to want to get back. And he's going to have, you know, uh, impetus to do so. So if players put the, put the impetus on the owners to say, hey, look, you know, we need you to go to bat for us and we will come back if you help to facilitate these changes and this legislation Mm -hmm. and this, you know, these points and so forth. I think that would move the needle a lot faster than if they came to play right away, even if they use the platform to say, for instance, halftime, they had some sort of uh, special, you know, uh, players talking about, you know, various issues and things like that, or if they knelt before games and so forth, that's going to ignite ire on the other side. People, oh, I don't want to hear what LeBron James had to say, shut up and dribble, mm-hmm. you know, just play the game, you know, because you have those people. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're out there in droves and, you know. Let me ask you this, because
0: you you, you just mentioned kind of player leverage essentially. And, and, you know, we we talk a lot about college and, uh, you know, we're seeing unprecedented unprecedented kind of actions from different collegiate athletes across the country who are essentially understanding now and realizing their leverage, part of it is because of momentum, right? And they feel supported behind a movement, right? That I think some of these issues they were aware of obviously before now, but now that they feel they feel like they're supported, they feel like they're part of something. Mm-hmm. And it, and obviously the NBA players have an a, a even next level of leverage because they got money. So they can literally quit and be good for life right now if they want to. How do you feel like this kind of movement we're seeing amongst athletes, uh, does it have staying power? Is this something that you think is going to actually, what's happening now is actually going to change the landscape of sports forever um, from a leverage standpoint? Or do you think that this is probably maybe just kind of a flash in the pan because of the movement itself?
2: Well, it has a danger of being flash in the pan, but I think uh, leverage comes from also power. So in the case of the Oklahoma State, his best player, is the one who raised, who raised the alarm and said, look, Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, this is, I'm not accepting this. This is going to have to be changed. So you saw right away, he came out (laughs) trying to put that fire out. Uh, So I think that's what it comes down to when the best players with the biggest platforms and the biggest voices, when they speak up now, they have no choice, but to listen. These coaches their livelihoods depend on having the best players. Yes. And that's also gonna they're gonna think about their futures as well. Because if they can't keep mm-hmm. their best players happy, forget about yes. recruiting. You're not gonna have you're gonna have to be able to field a great team in the future. Mm-hmm. And what what does that mean? You're gonna lose your job as yeah, a coach because, because you job. couldn't yep. yeah, you couldn't put together a winning team, a winning record, so forth, so on. So now yeah. players really have the leverage and also more people are listening. Mm-hmm. People who had never listened or understood or you know really real recognize what was happening before now they're seeing it now they're yeah. willing to step out and say okay it's not enough to say i'm not racist you have to mm-hmm. be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. You have to be anti-discrimination. You have right. to be anti, you know, police corruption and police mm-hmm. brutality. You have to be anti, take a stance. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, you know me. I'm not racist. You know me. Right. When I see wrong, yeah. you know, I wish <laughs> wrong didn't happen. <laughs> right. we, that, that's not going to fly anymore. Now mm-hmm. there has to be action. You have to speak mm-hmm. up, use your voice, yeah. use your platform, whatever that whatever that may be. And if we can, you know, put together that kind of momentum, we'll see real change because that's where true leverage comes from from yeah. action, from standing behind your convictions, you know, uh, that old freedom of death, you know, mm-hmm. it, it really comes down to that, you know. And I think a lot of other non uh, African Americans are seeing that justice, injustice for us, also can mean injustice for them if yes. they let it, you Absolutely. know, grow and multiply and get worse. And they mm-hmm. really see that in the police community, you know. Uh, So I think, you know, the groundswell has been growing. Uh, Different voices are seeing. And I think, you know, V made a good point. We're all stagnant and we're forced to see. We were forced to see what happened to George Floyd. We're forced to see all these various, um, you know, things that we could turn a blind eye to. Oh, we're busy. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're working. Oh, we're Mm -hmm. out. We're having fun. We're drinking. Mm -hmm. We're hanging with Mm -hmm. friends. Oh, I'm just too busy. Uh, you're still on that. Still, you know, um, now there's no turning away, you know, and there's a lot of power in kind of making everybody stop. And even from a different standpoint, with the world kind of standing as still smog disappeared in LA animals are coming out, you know, right, uh, right, right, right. you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. It's like the world is healing a little bit and this can be a time where we could heal if we pay attention and we take action.
1: And, and I wanted to, to ask you about this. America and and I've talked about this as well is two, two things. What, what do you think the obligation of one people in power is like NBA owners, NFL owners, baseball players, um, and then the second thing is, what is what do you feel like white America's obligation is um, to this cause?
2: So, I think it all has to start with acknowledgement. And for too long, they've you know pushed the can down the road. They didn't want to face it. Uh, you know, you'll see it all the time. Oh, you talk about slavery? Forget about that. You know, but then you say nine eleven. Never forget. You know, uh, so it's almost as if, you know, never forget the atrocities committed against us, but forget all the atrocities that we committed against others. They want to sweep those under under the rug. So, you know, from, you know, the white community and and people in, uh, in the power like that, they have to own their shit. Mm -hmm. Realize that you want to see the power, realize that there really is such a thing as white privilege, not because you necessarily see it. You might have grew up poor or whatever else. But I bet you if your name was on a job application and a black person's name that, you know, might have been uh, Mustafa on the, on the uh, actual job application, your resume is going to get more looks and clicks and likes and people are going to uh, call you up for that job, even though y'all have the exact same GPA and things like that. So there's yeah. privilege on all levels and you have to acknowledge that. You know, you have to go back to the, you know, um, the Constitution. It was literally wrote, written by white men only for white men. Even white women couldn't vote, you know. Mm-hmm. So and we still to this day have that and we've just ratified it and added amendments and things like that. But the actual document is still what this country is founded upon. So you mm-hmm. have to think about that systemic ideology that permeates through everything. Even when you look mm-hmm. at our government, there are only three African-Americans in the whole Congress, you know, I mean, what is that? This should at least be thirteen percent, you know, or fourteen percent. What you know, where we are as far as uh, African American representation, it should represent how this country is set up, and we have too many "quote unquote." old white men making decisions and even though we're in 2020 these old white men probably still look at things as in 1960, 1965 when their are formative years when they made the bones of who they are and how they think and how they view the world yeah. you know they may tell you one thing and give you lip service but you best believe they're hanging on to their, their ideals and their beliefs that, you know, formed themselves as that's an a, adult, you know, that's a great
0: point because I, I think a lot of the things that I think now, obviously I've grown and I've learned, but the foundation, you're you're so right. What happened in high school or even before yeah. that, you know what I mean? So most of my beliefs on how the world works and what I guess my place is in the world hasn't, haven't, hasn't necessarily changed since then. So I agree with you hundred percent. Let me ask you this though. Actually two questions. One is, I guess, what do you see now? Um, I guess you could do it from the sporting world or you could just do it from, from, you know, regular life. What do you see now as kind of the most troubling thing about this time period? Uh, And then the second question is, the flip side is, what do you see now as the most promising thing that you've seen during this time period?
2: So I think, you know, one thing that kind of gets glossed over with this time period is mental health. Mm. Um, We are a very social creature. And to be cut off from family friends you know you can't go and you know hug your mom hug your dad or yeah. hug your grandparents or grandparents can't hug their grandkids um you know the mental health is really declining you know yeah. i have a five-year-old you know she's so close to her grandparents and you know she hasn't been able to hug them and yeah. you know i can see the pain in their eye and i can see the pain in their eyes you know yeah. so mental health is really an issue and Somebody like me, I can speak from personal experience. My anxiety levels have been extremely high, Mm -hmm. and that's just from a standpoint of I don't want to get it. I'm scared to get it. Right. You know, everything is just so extreme, uh, and I'm I know I'm not alone in that. You know, Uh, so one of the things that can kind of gets glossed over, you know, outside of the unemployment and you know businesses, you know, tanking and and things of that sort, and the uprisings and so forth, mental health. You know, agree with you 100 percent. It's overlooked. Uh, Yeah. 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 Um, And it's one of those things, especially in the minority community, we tend to not seek professional help when it comes to mental health. And I I saw a lot of momentum going towards that. And I hope people take advantage of that on the other side of this, because we're really going to need it because, you know, it's not hyperbole to say a lot of us will have PTSD. After, you know, this time period, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I know I was in jobs or they might have lost a house, loved one, health, uh, you know, because even if you survive this, it might, you know, uh, alter your heart, you know, lung. Who knows how long you'll live past it, you know, even though you've quote unquote recovered. So um, we really are at war with ourselves, uh, with the environment, uh, with, you know racism, discrimination, we're at war with a lot of these things. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of PTSD. So I think that's one of the most overlooked negative aspects. Mm -hmm. One of the positives, I think, is you're seeing in real time. People are forced to have self reflection. Mm -hmm. Okay, what am I doing? What means the most to me? Mm -hmm. Um, I can say from a personal experience that, you know, um, I was a very, you know, growing up poor, and having some success as a, an adult, I have grown very materialistic, you know. Mm. And one of the things I saw immediately is all of that energy and just sort of importance placed on that was gone immediately. Mm-hmm. I don't care about anything <laughs> right. materialistic, you know. Right, right. Um, and, and you know, not to toot my own horn, but I have some great quote unquote material things. And yeah. I don't care one bit, one thing about them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that just lets me know that, you know, I think I'm not alone and, and it might just, um, just be materialism, but I think people have been able to stop, really reflect and and kind of really pinpoint, okay, what's important to me? Mm-hmm. What's important as I move forward? What's gonna be my next 50, 60, 70 years of life? What yeah. What impact am I going to make? Mm-hmm. And I think you're seeing that also in real time with these athletes, you know, before, it's all about championships and my brand and sneaker deals, whatever. Now, okay, what about my kids? What about the impact I'm going to have outside of being an athlete? Does yeah. my voice really mean anything? And is it now time to to sh- so, you know sit up and say something? Or right. uh, what's the best way for me to do that? And right. that's why there's a lot of you know confusion on all levels, especially when you look at this sort of uh, NBA restart. Um, yeah. It's coming across the board. People are just really having self-reflection and really seeing what's really important to them in their lives and their families. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's we're healthy. seeing that across the board. It's
1: healthy, right? Even the NBA thing, I think some people are getting a bad bad rep, but it's healthy that they're having these conversations because no two people think alike. Everyone's dealing with, with trauma or there's a justification for why they hold their position. But I think it's a real opportunity for the NBA community to kind of embrace all of these different opinions and move forward. That's what we hope for as a country, right? One of the issues, major issues that we have is that we all kind of stay in our own sandbox, right? Um, in this situation- echo yeah, Chambers. And you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: this situation is forcing us to join, join all in the same sandbox. Um, one, you know, in the, in the spirit of understanding, right? I wanted to ask, one more question we have some nba questions historic questions Mm -hmm. that we're going to get to but one last question that i have is is this one um you as have have written and and been involved um, in the nba world for for a long time um and have been a journalist i would like to hear about your specific experience right as a writer what you've dealt with in terms of race throughout your career um, and and how you've gotten to where you've gotten despite that, but some of the challenges you've specifically faced, and you've seen other minority r- writers face that you haven't seen from your Caucasian counterparts.
2: So one of the immediate things was I came from a, a quote-unquote hip hop journalist uh, space. So your King magazines, your slams. Uh, you can if you look if you compare that to you know traditional media, you'll know what I'm talking about. And one of the biggest problems I had was making the switch and kind of going back and forth. And there was a lot of pushback from the voice that I developed. And I had to literally dial everything back, take a lot of my personality out. Um, and I don't I didn't, I don't think I saw a lot of, you know, my white counterparts, you know, uh, have to go through that. So a lot of my voice and opinion was kind of taken out. Um, so... It's funny, I have to. I have a mindset with whoever I might rewrite for. Like, oh, okay, I'm writing for them. Okay, I can I can be me. I can write, mm-hmm. you know, free flowing my voice, you know, how I would you know communicate. And if i were writing over here, like, okay, well, I've got to write at a fourth grade level, mm-hmm. you know, use words that everybody knows and right. just right. everything. And yeah. you know, no, uh, you know, like yeah, uh, one of my editors used to say, "Kill your babies." Uh, you have to kill your babies on, you know, for certain publications because you know you can't be uh, wordy or you know use this particular language and so forth or slang or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's one of those things that's been a harsh reality. And like when you go into locker rooms and and those kind of environments, you're judged by who you're writing for. Mm-hmm. I noticed, mm-hmm. and there's this assumption. That if you're a minority, you're not writing for a prominent publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've even tested that. You know, so a lot of times when you go into these locker rooms or what, or back, you know, uh, to the back of the house, backstage, whatever the case may be, they'll have you wear your, uh, you know, your media lanyard over around your neck. Sometimes I'll hide it in my pocket or whatever else, and just kind of see how I'm perceived or responded to you know, just kind of say, okay, am I tripping? You know, Mm -hmm. and more often than not, I'm not tripping. You know, you're judged by that. And I don't see a lot of my white counterparts go through that. Um, So I try to um, bridge the gap however I can. So, you know, when you get in these media scrums, I try to make sure, you know, my uh, African American counterparts who are writing for African American publications, they get space. Uh, you know make sure they can ask that question because they're just as important uh to get the word out you know um so you see it a lot um and it's not just from a racial standpoint it's also kind of classism Mm -hmm. you know again oh my publication is more important than yours or whatever the case may be and you see that across um society you know yeah um I have a family member who's a doctor who thinks they're better than everybody because they're a yeah, doctor, you know. Right, right. Um yeah. and I th- I think that's where we kind of fall short in our humanity. Mm-hmm. If your worth is only tied to what you do or mm-hmm. how much money you make, we've yeah. already lost. You yeah. know, you're missing out on so much a vast um you know uh vacuum of knowledge and yeah. experience and everything else. We just don't value voices because they're not coming from prominent um titles or you know the most amount of money or or you know status in society yeah. uh, and that's one of the things that i've tried to be cognizant about just to make sure you know i don't devalue someone just because they're stationed in life uh because i, think, well, I was that, I, I was that same person you know yeah i think yeah. you
0: made a good point too because and you and you kind of uh referred to this earlier too when you're talking about this time period kind of slowing everybody down and making people start to reevaluate what's important to them and even yourself in terms of material things. I think that's happened to a lot of people and I'm hopeful, right? I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic. I guess I'll say that that will carry over into society and further beyond. And we won't place such an emphasis on those type of things. And we will start to see the value of each individual and personal relationships and understanding and, and meeting new people and so on and so forth. So I think that's that if, if it, when we talk about, you know, what do I see now that's potentially hopeful that for me, that is what what I'm hoping for. Um, I want to switch real quick, though, because, you know, I know you don't have a lot of time, and I want to get to a couple other things. One of them is um, the Isaiah Thomas. You grew up as an Isaiah Thomas fan, is that correct?
2: I wore number 11 when I played.
0: Okay, all mm-hmm. right. So, you know, obviously this, this summer, one of the things that actually did become a distraction, which I think was probably healthy for a lot of us, was The Last Dance, right? The Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls documentary. And one of the things that um, obviously was like a storyline throughout that was Isaiah Thomas and the dream team and how he was snubbed and whether or not Michael Jordan had a role in it or didn't have a role in it. I guess as a fan of Isaiah and just as a, a basketball writer and person who's involved in the space, what did you think of the last dance? Uh, and then also what did you think about, what are your thoughts on what actually really happened with Isaiah and the dream team? And if okay, you so...
1: in one edition and your thoughts on the player you admired versus Everything that we've seen and heard from from Isaiah since he left the court, too.
2: So, spoiler alert: um, I'm I was a huge bad boy fan, so that's why I hated Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I hated him. Before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, wow. You, were you
0: able? To, were you able to respect him as you hated him? Or oh, yeah, you oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely.
2: Okay. You know, because you no, can only okay. hate somebody that that that's relevant. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. That, right. that constantly game, kills your dreams and different. stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> so uh, that's why I had such a visceral hate because he was so damn good and we couldn't right. just get rid of him. You know, right, right. Uh, but I also really appreciated you know his game and everything. Um, but for me, you know Isaiah was like a maestro on the court. Mm. Um, He had the ball on the string. The things he could do, you know, people talk about Kyrie and things like that. Isaiah is Kyrie's blueprint. Mm. Isaiah was the one who could come down, lose you, and shake you, and and cross you, and he could score at will. I mean, all I had to do was point to that 25-point outburst on a a, uh, sprained ankle. I mean, the dude was unstoppable. He's won at every um, you know, I just used to love the way he would smile and just be a baby face assassin, you know. <laughs> right. he smile on your face, and he don't look like he's 15, but, man, he would kill you. Right. Kill you on that's the coin. That's how Steph is. Yeah, yeah six foot nothing, yeah. but, man, not afraid to go in there and mix it up, take an elbow and still finish on you and get through yeah. the contact. You know? you know, a few elbows, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. you know, right. and from Chicago, roughshod Chicago, so ain't no backing down, right. you know, uh, he was fearless and I was never that tall. So I, I just really gravitated towards Isaiah and I played point guard in high school and I used to love to pass. And, you know, I was more of a defensive specialist. Uh, that's what kept me on the court and why yeah. I wanted a starting job. But um, I just loved Isaiah and the way he played uh, even on down to the shooting form, you know, mm-hmm. so I used to shoot like him, you know, right. um, and I wore number 11, like I said, until, uh, I, I was part of a team where I couldn't get number eleven, and I chose thirty-four for Charles Barkley. He was like one of my, uh, I guess, my third best player, uh, favorite right. player. Um, but as far as Isaiah, I was glad to see that people got to see the asshole side of Jordan because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he was painted as like, oh, I want to be like Mike. but right, right. Really, he's an asshole. And I right. and I met him before. He's an mm-hmm. asshole. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you're not a woman don't even bother (laughs) he'll talk to a cute girl or woman but man and some guy no uh wow i've experienced it firsthand and i've seen a guy you know telling
1: you to fuck up
2: right yeah uh and he's like that you know and he may have you know mellowed as he's gotten older but man who um i i met him when he was doing his wizards tour you know comeback tour and wow he was an asshole but you know uh, a lot of people got to see that asshole side of him in last dance and he finally admitted how much he hated uh isaiah and the pistons and what's funny to me was isaiah and the pistons made him the winner he was sure he was great Next he, world, said that he, he, said that,
1: he said it. Isaiah is the best point guard ever. He did. He did. And why would you hate to that degree?
2: Somebody who made you as great as you are. I just don't understand that part of it. You got your ass because they were literally beating his ass. <laughs> yeah. It made him go be better. Made him go lift weights. Made him just yeah. push through and find this other gear. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? It, it took him to a whole level. Nother... He still would have been great. Probably would have still been the best of all time, but it took him those battles and learning how to win, learning how to overcome physical challenges, mental challenges, you know, all of these things. And it, it's just unfortunate that he didn't see the value in that and had carried such a grudge that he kept him off that team. When So you
0: do believe he kept him off the team? Yes.
2: Okay. But it seemed 100%. like by that time Isaiah, had, Isaiah yeah.
1: had burned bridges with Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and, and even the person that spoke out about it was David Robinson, right? And and he's not a guy that's outspoken, but he said, Isaiah, we wanted a team that was unified and people just didn't like Isaiah or the bad boys because that was the culture that they presented, right? And, and you talked about Jordan being an I- asshole, but it seems like Isaiah is a pretty big asshole himself, right? So it's
2: two yeah, <laughs> yeah, and buddy heads. Yeah, but I, what I liked about Isaiah and the rest of the team and the bad boys were they embodied the spirit of Detroit. Uh, I'm from Oakland. We have that same spirit, working class, you know, um, against the grain. You know, obviously we had the Black Panthers, a lot of fighting spirit in us. And I saw that same camaraderie and in, in, uh, simpatico with Detroit, you know. Yeah. And so they were just really beacons for their city. And that's why. They're, you know, they were embraced in that way, and so forth. And for Jordan to de- delegitimize them as champions when they had yeah. to fight the same kind of battle, they had to fight through Boston, they had to fight through LA. You know, they had to learn how to win as well. Isaiah famously uh, threw that ball, and Bird caught the pass, and you know, knocked him out. You know, so he had to learn valuable lessons from his, you know, peers and, and better players and so forth and so on. And that torch was passed to Jordan. And, you know, the Pistons acknowledged it. Why couldn't the Bulls? You know, right. and I think a lot more has been given towards that whole no-shake thing than really needed to be. And th- that's yeah. that's another one of the things why Jordan was so amplified. Petty, right? it's, it's, he, it's, yeah, he was so amplified that everybody jumped on that bandwagon when just a year before the Celtics did the same thing. They didn't get the same ire. I don't understand that part of it, you know. So do it's like selective outrage, you know. Uh, what we saw was,
1: do you think it was just one of those things like we knew that Jordan went out of his way to create c- competition and create adversaries for himself? Do you think I think in a lot of ways, his ire for the Pistons is is showing how much respect he had for him, right? Because
2: he kind of the same that, way I hated Jordan. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm.
1: He put that in his mind that this was, put, these were the bad boys were the biggest threat to him in the NBA. To overcome that, he had to put them in a place where he absolutely hated them. Um, and it carries over. shows He still carries that same vitriol to every single person that he feels has wronged him in life. You know what I mean? Um,
0: yeah. I have a question. In- I have a question too, Maurice, about uh, kind of you mentioned Jordan being being the GOAT, and you kind of said that in passing. First of all, do you agree that he's the GOAT? Yes. Okay. And so let me ask you this question, because I'm curious about, you know, now that you, you know, obviously you grew up as a fan of basketball, and now you actually cover basketball. And so I think you've been back around basketball your whole life. So I want to get a sense of this. Jordan was, is the GOAT, and I think that as he was playing, he was kind of, he was respected as the GOAT by play, even great players. What do you think, how do you feel like LeBron is respected amongst his teammates I mean I guess even a couple years ago and whatever we consider his prime do you feel like he has similar type of respect amongst his peers in the league that Jordan has because I think when people talk about the GOAT argument that is one of the subtle things that people don't necessarily mention was that people were scared to play Jordan like they all-stars Hall of Famers were scared I don't know if we saw that at the level that we did with LeBron but what's your what does your experience tell you?
2: So the, the one kind of, I guess, difference between Jordan and LeBron, because make one mistake about it, LeBron is a supreme athlete, supremely gifted, and he was one of those players where he had all the talent in the world, but he busted his ass too. Mm-hmm. You put those together, he's going to succeed. You know what I mean? Right, there are a lot of right. players that had so much talent that just kind of coasted their way, not yeah. LeBron took care of himself, took care of his body. That's why Mm -hmm. he's in the 17th season. So he's going to have all the best stats when it's over, when it's all Mm -hmm. said and done. So from that perspective, he's got a really good shot at reaching the goal. The reason, Mm -hmm. the one thing that keeps him from that, that final push is his supposed lack of killer instinct Mm
1: -hmm.
2: now. And I can see it as kind of a basketball sort of purist or analyst or what have you, He I've watched him shirk in important moments where I know a Kobe or a Jordan, you know, or magic or bird. They would not, they wanted the ball. I'm taking the shot. I don't care what I'm taking it. I'm doing it. I'm going to win this game. And he has done it from time to time, but there's been times where he shirked it. Uh, He didn't have confidence in his free throw shooting ability. So he'd be afraid to take it to the basket in the crucial times and so forth. So on. and even he's getting he's getting lambasted for Kyrie hitting the big shot, even though he got the big block. Okay. It's easy to go get a defensive play. There's not a lot of, so quote-unquote, pressure on that because you're not going to have to shoot a free throw. You know what I mean? If, if you miss it or miss the big shot or what have you. So that's the one fine line that's keeping him from crossing that final threshold to being GOAT. But I think if he wins one for the Lakers, I think now – It'll be very hard to keep him out of it. You know, th- it's going to be based on who you are and what generation you're in, and you're, who your GOAT is. And there's no argument against it. If he wins with the Lakers, I really can't argue him not being. Mm-hmm. He's goat, GOAT-ish or GOAT right, 2.0. Right, uh, right, right. He's going to have to share the truth, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Um We've had this
1: conversation plenty of times because I know you're also a huge Kobe Bryant fan. And in and this current moment, you still, and I still have Kobe over LeBron, right? And I say this because, yeah, he had the three championships with Shaq, but then Kobe stayed with the same team. Obviously, it's the Lakers, right? But he won two more without Shaq um, for a total of five. Um, and LeBron has, I think, three, right? Um, do you think that the one, do you, why do you have Kobe over LeBron still? And then also how much do you think the championship numbers matter in this discussion?
2: I think the championship number matters, but it doesn't, it it shouldn't matter as much as people like to lean on, you know, um, one of those famous, uh, lines is, uh, you know, people like to use statistics but liars use statistics. So you better make sure what stats they're really trying to use in their argument. You know what I mean? So, you know, when you take the Jordan against LeBron, Oh, it's the six championships. Well, didn't Bill Russell win, you know, 11, you know what I mean? So it's, you can skew statistics in any way you want to. So I, I, I really don't, lean too much towards the statistics, uh, the championships anyway. Uh, I think to be in that upper echelon, you have to have won a couple mm-hmm. championships. That's right. a must, Yeah. okay? But beyond that, now it's breaking down to, okay, what kind of versatility did you have? And for LeBron, a lot of his versatility is in, you know, bringing other teammates level up to, you know, level of play up, uh, things like that, getting people involved in the game. But Kobe Bryant's versatility was he was able to extend his career. He went from outside in. He went to go see uh, Hakeem. He was one of the first players to go see Hakeem Olajuwon to get his footwork. So now he could add that to his game. He was always evolving and changing his game to where you could not stop him no matter what you did. Hand in his face. Uh, What's his name Uh, uh, for the Rockets? He used to put his hand literally touching his nose uh, to try, uh, try to stop his shot and Kobe practiced with hands in his face so he could still see and and follow through and hit that shot. So when you have a player that's constantly evolving and looking to involve to have these different dimensions where you can't be stopped, whether it's on the perimeter, mid-range game, low post, what have you, uh, free throws, you can count on him to ice, ice free throws, all these other things. You know, that's why I, you know, I have him in my upper echelon of players and also just that killer instinct. I'm sorry, but that's very important to me. Um, I think you need to have it in whatever you do. You know, uh, you have to know, Okay, I'm going to get this done. It's going to happen. I can't count on anybody else. I got to do my share. I got to step up. The team's, you know, counting on me to write this story or file this report or sell this, whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, You have to have that killer instinct if you want to be successful in life. And I feel like LeBron kind of went and got some of that killer instinct from Dwayne Wade uh, in Miami. But I don't think he would have ever won if he didn't leave Miami. He needed to go learn that killer instinct. He had everything else game-wise. But that killer instinct, he got some from Dwayne. And now he has, you know, a good percentage of it. He doesn't quite have the level of Jordan and and Kobe, but I think he's getting there, but he may run out of time, so to speak, because I don't know how many more years he has at at his prime or playing at this level anyway. Um, I think he's past his prime, but he's been able to extend it. Right, right, absolutely.
0: Okay, let me ask. Go ahead. ahead, I was going to switch gears.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, one last question before we switch gears. I was going to say that there's a lot more that we haven't covered yet, but we know that you're from Oakland, right? And you yeah. are a golden state warriors fan yeah. <laughs> where you're at. You know, one of the funny things that we always talk about is one, where did all these golden state warriors fans come from, right? When they were winning. And then second, where, where did, did they, they all go? go? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but you know, Oakland, anybody who knows the NBA knows the people who are in Oakland they were diehard Warriors fans. That's that stadium was filled when when TMC baby when they were when they were winning ten games right. So talk to us a little bit about that as a fan. You know how you felt about how you feel about bandwagon fans and how real OG Warriors fans feel about all of the flash that came with with the th- the championship run.
2: So. I don't have so much a problem with it as most other people might have. Um, I think what the Warriors went through was kind of the Chicago Bull effect. So Michael Jordan brought in fans that otherwise wouldn't have been fans. Um, He brought a level of excitement to the game. So a lot of people were diehard Michael Jordan fans, and then they became Bulls fans by default. You know what I mean? And I think the Warriors had the same thing. Steph Curry, he brought in fans that otherwise wouldn't have been. You know what I mean? He brought in the common man who didn't, who weren't as athletic. But, hey, I could hit a three-point shot. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so that kind of opened up the game and fandom uh, to me. So because of Steph, the Warriors became a de facto favorite team, you know, for a lot of people. And i don't so much mind that you know um i'm glad to see you know a lot of well i was glad to see a lot of people rooting for the same team that i was uh even if it was for a short time uh because i remember that wasn't the case you know um i was pulling for mitch Mitch richmond chris mullen tim Hardaway. i love you know uh uh, run tmc you know i was too poor to go to games but man i was rooting (laughs) you know what i mean I, i was rocking my uh uh, Tim Hardaway uh, jersey and part uh, you know, of the team. Yeah, yeah. preals Sleepy Floyd. Uh, wow. For those that don't know, that that boy was a killer. He was nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in um, the we believe team. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jason Richardson winning those slam dunk mm-hmm. commons, you know, championships. Uh, you know, so I, I, it was great for me being a Warrior fan to kind of reach that that mountaintop and uh, get some championships up in there. And I'm okay that we, you know, we're not there anymore. You know, I'm still a yeah. fan. I'm always support, but I understand that everything's cyclical. Right. It's somebody else's time. You know, who whose time that's gonna be? It's, it remains to be seen. Yeah. But I'm okay with the fact that we took advantage of it. We slid some championships up in there. I'm okay. Yeah. Especially, I'm with, a Raiders with, fan. We yeah. suck. <laughs> I mean, the suck. The
0: <laughs> has a lot, of, a lot of movement now too. That's different than it, than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So guys are. Going different places, moving around, yeah. Hard to see six championships in a row and all that type of stuff now nowadays. But I want to get to one thing also before we get you out of here. Something that that's that's pretty important. Um, off the subject a little bit. You were you were a soldier, right? In the army. Yeah, is that uh-huh. correct? And so the it's it's re- First of all, it's always relevant. Thank you for your service. You know, since <laughs> you. You. Uh, but it's 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 extremely relevant now because there's there's a lot of um, talk around kind of the kaepernick thing right and it's it's bubbled back up now that that we're dealing with these protests and all these issues and obviously the nfl has come out and reversed course and now goodell is encouraging teams to sign them and all this this type of stuff and one of the pushbacks which i felt was illegitimate and whatever but it was one of the pushbacks of, of what kaepernick did was that it was a you know it was a slight to the army and a slight to the armed forces a disrespectful to them and not knowing that it was actually nate boyer who was a green beret if that's right um who told him to actually kneel, right? Um, so I guess I have two questions. One for you is, how do you feel as the black soldier, right? and coming back to this country and dealing with some of the issues that we feel like black people are dealing with in this country, including some of the issues that we're fighting for in this protest? And then the second question is, how did you feel about that framing that people were trying to do about Kaepernick McNeiling being disrespectful to to soldiers and people who fought?
2: okay so um you know i like to use personal experience um so i was stationed in somalia and i was uh part of the uh, armed guard for the swedish hospital so every day um you know obviously people somalians needing medical attention would show up to the gates where we would we would allow a certain amount of uh patients in for the swedish hospital to uh you know give care and, you know, one of the things that really disillusioned me was as soldiers, when it was time to quote unquote stop the influx of patients, and okay, we, we had to ask them to leave. And if they didn't leave, now we have to use force. Mm. And to have to use force against people that I can literally see need medical attention uh and i remember and it's kind of fucking with me a little bit i'm sorry uh i had to forcibly remove a guy who was missing all of this and you you, you only see his teeth with his you know mouth closed and he had just uh it, it looked like he had you know come in contact with some shrapnel or something like that and i had to forcibly remove this guy knowing that he needs medical attention it fucked me up for a while and mm-hmm. there was a lot of that that i had to endure and go through and mess with me uh when i came back i was mad for having to have gone through that and do that uh, and for a long time i wouldn't even say that i was a veteran mm-hmm. because it would just drum up those feelings and so now I could really understand the PTSD of other soldiers like me, yeah. like maybe a Vietnam or whatever, who had to commit atrocities against kids and families and whatever the case may be. Um, and you put all of this on the line and you do things that you think are part of a moral, you know, a moral fabric of you and what you believe in in this country and so forth. You really see that we're not as you know, morally superior as we'd like to be, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, our ideologies are very flawed. And some of the reasonings behind what we do, it really can be disillusioning. Mm -hmm. And so when you just just juxtapose that to what you have to face as a black American soldier veteran in this country, you're willing to put your life on the line. You can go all the way back to what we're celebrating today, Juneteenth. There were literally soldiers, black soldiers who had to fight against their against their own interests, Mm -hmm. who did not know that they were free, who put their life on the line and died not knowing that they were free. You know what I mean? Um, And you, you, you take that to Drew Brees' comment where he tried to hide behind his grandfathers, and that's great. But what about the people who fought alongside your grandfathers who came back to this country after fighting for freedom abroad, who couldn't get that freedom here, who were beat up when they were in uniform, who couldn't go vote? who couldn't provide for their families. You know, even as early as the Vietnam War, soldiers came back. White soldiers were giving loans with impunity. They were giving uh, business loans with impunity, things like that. Black soldiers, no loans, no uh, business loans. So now you see that trickle down to now where these people are dying off and the white soldiers, they're leaving their grandkids with property, businesses, wealth. I had to pay for my grandparents to be uh, buried. No insurance, I paid for it out of pocket. So that just tells you the disparity that still flows over into co- in the current day that people don't pay attention to or try to gloss over. Uh, so those are some of the disillusion that I saw as being a soldier, um, you know, that we really aren't taken care of. And when you look at the medical medical community we're not viewed in the same light as you know uh white soldiers you know uh they'll write us off or if we say something's ailing we won't get the same treatment they'll push us out oh you're you know you're fine you know what i mean so i can't tell you how what kind of effect that's had over the course of all these years of being mixed, mixed diagnosed or uh under because you're black and they're not giving you the same medical treatment. So uh, that's very disheartening from that standpoint. And then as a as a veteran, I look at a Colin Kaepernick. I was so proud to have someone protest when I put my life on the line for him to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, I literally went and fought in a war so citizens could hold this government accountable to give us the life, liberty and freedom and justice for all. That I supposedly fought for, and that's all he was doing. And it was a silent protest. And you had all this ire directed towards him. When you look at the fact that now there's some rioting and whatever else, and it's not just us, you know. There's some art, you know, agitators and things like that. But now that the, the, the now the frame is, well, why can't you do it peacefully? Well, didn't we do that three years ago? And you cause us sons of bitches, you know. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. And then. Also, as a veteran, I find it odd that veterans aren't the ones who are saying, oh, we're well, disrespecting the flag is people speaking for veterans. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. I have a voice. I can speak for myself. Don't speak for me. Mm-hmm. Don't hide behind me and us and what we did and the sacrifices we made, because I can tell you to a man, all of my veteran friends and compatriots and people that I st- still keep in contact with, they all are proud or were, you know, supported Kaepernick kneeling because they understood what he was doing and it wasn't against the flag. It wasn't Mm -hmm. against the anthem. And also, let's look at that anthem. Let's read the third verse. Mm -hmm. Why are we proud about an anthem that literally in the third verse says to catch and kill slaves? Mm -hmm. Why is that still, you know, sure, we don't sing it, Mm -hmm. but is it's the song song literally. And Mm -hmm. so you want to hang your hat on that. So as a veteran, And I've said this multiple times, actual freedom is more important to me than symbols of freedom. Mm -hmm. People are getting caught up in the symbols, the flag, the anthem, excuse me. We should be focused on actual freedom. Let's focus on upholding those virtues and values and we could get somewhere to where now everybody would be proud to say, I'm an American. I'm a citizen of this country because why? I'm respected as a citizen. I'm appreciated as a citizen. I'm treated equally and fairly like a citizen. That's where we need to get to because, and and I hate this whole, if you don't love the country, then leave it. Okay, when you had issues and things like that, did we tell you to leave? Mm -hmm. Is that your first inclination, is to leave or give up or drop it? So if your kid comes home with an F, kick that kid out of the house and whatever. No, you got to work with that kid and get that F to an A. That's what we're trying to do with this country. We're trying to get an F to an A. We want to have an excellent one hundred score across the board for this country. And it's gonna take work, it's gonna take us standing up and saying something that's not gonna be easy to hear and it's gonna be anger some people, but you have to have self reflection and look and say, Okay, how have I contributed to this discord? How have Uh, I contributed to the status that we're in? And people aren't taking that 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 opportunity. I
1: wanted to I wanted to focus in on on one part of what you said, right? Which is, we tried to do it peacefully, right? When people criticize the riots and criticize some of the reactions, right? And this country historically has been built on rebellion and violent rebellion. Well, it's a tea Party. Yep. And and you know, and Dave Chappelle brought this up. I know you've you've probably seen it as well. That at a certain point, it turns. That rage turns, right? And he was talking about specifically with the police brutality that a lot of the, the what, was, what happened in Dallas and then what happened later on in Baton Rouge was actually committed by soldiers, right? And specifically black soldiers. Um, and you've alluded to that rage. What, why don't you think that America understands that it's at that point now, right? That it's at that point where we're, we're, we're knocking on the door we're knocking on the door we're fighting for our equality but now we actually literally have to fight and why do you think that that's looked down on when black Americans do that versus every other rebellion that's happened in America is glorified
2: it just comes down to uh, like I said at the beginning uh, not owning their shit they want us to forget what they've done but remember what's done been done to them so now the highlight or the focus is being put on what they've done. And they don't want to, you know, be called to the carpet for those things. And it's coming from us, we we aren't in a seat of power, and they are, and it's very uncomfortable to have to face these things. So now you want to take the focus on the off the message and then now focus on the messenger. That's why so many unarmed, uh, murdered unarmed black people, they get tried in the court of public opinion on what they did in the past, what what does that have to do with what we're dealing with right now? You know, just because they stole a snack when they were 15 that doesn't make them a bad person. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I can tell you, I went to an all white high school. There were literally five black people in the whole school. The crimes I saw committed, but were never saying, you know, they don't have rabid police officers coming in, in their community and resting them. And I saw. Uh, same rape drinking vandalism you name it running from police all that yeah but it's all counted as quote unquote mistakes Mm -hmm. but you know we had we're over policed so whatever mistake we made we're gonna have to pay the price for them and now the statistics are skewed because there's been more focus put on our community and that's why so you know people need to move away from the messenger and focus on the message what are we saying can you listen to that Mm -hmm. You know, can you listen to these young people and how they're crying out that, hey, all of us are should be treated equal. I see my black brother over here. They're not getting the same treatment or the right treatment or equal treatment. You know, because it's not just us out there. That's why this feels different. Mm -hmm. It's not just us. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all different kind of communities coming together and they're joining with us and they're taking action. So they're not just, oh, I'm not racist. Oh, I'm anti-racist. And This is why I'm standing alongside with you to fight for you because if you can come up, now we're all together up and it makes a better life for all of us.
0: Well, I think, and it's like you said, and to put a button on this, I think it's been amazing to see all across the country, all the different communities that come together, even here in Ohio, some of the richest, uh, you know, whitest suburbs in Columbus, Ohio, Upper Arlington and New Albany. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to these protests. And that's something that you just would have never seen before. And I think you made a very poignant point earlier, and V and I have talked about this before as well, is that people are starting to realize the, you know, and I think this is something that. You know, all human beings need to realize that we're all connected. So what happens to me, essentially, it's going to affect you at some point. It may not be the same direct effect, but energy, I believe in energy, and I believe that we're all connected. And then also, and this is kind of what Martin Luther King used to say, is that injustice anywhere um, is injustice everywhere. Because once you, once, people, once you allow injustice to happen, it's only a matter of time before it starts to happen to you. And that's what a lot of protesters are starting to see now in the streets when they're getting hit and they're getting pushed down by by police or they're getting beaten with batons they're like wait hold on this is what's going on and then also like we said earlier everybody's had to pause at this this time period and kind of pay attention to things that they weren't paying attention to before people are realizing that history certain Juneteenth and different things were never taught to them people are like wait and they're getting a whole re-examination of what this country actually is because what it was branded to be versus what it's actually been are two totally different things I think a lot of people are coming to grips with that
1: and, and to transition a little bit from sports to, to your experience in hip hop, right? That's the other thing that the Mecca and I talk about a lot is the type of value that Black Americans create for this country, right? That everyone gets to enjoy, but they don't share in the rewards, right? Hip hop culture is something that's been exploited for decades now, and the multi billion, billions of dollars as, as kind of a hip hop journalist. I wanted to kind of get your, your opinion on, on, on that, the hip hop culture as a whole and how generally this this country can give back to those cultures that they're being rewarded from and enjoying. Right.
2: So I, uh, you know, I, I see a meme kind of going around, you know, I wish they loved us like they, they love our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, our culture is permeated from jazz, to inventions, to music, to I mean, you name it, um, you know, uh, a black man invented the stoplight, you know, literally telling us to stop and go, you know. So we have had so many contributions in this country that have been ignored or whitewashed to where now hip hop has been whitewashed. Mm -hmm. Even so, if you look at it, the most popular artists are white. Yeah. And and actually the Biggest consumer is white, so we're okay as far as to listen to. But you wouldn't go to bat for anything that we really care about. You know, you only care about, you know, what we have to say over a tight beat. Uh, But forget about what we how things really affect our families or our lives and things of that sort. So there's been this sort of compartmentalization. Uh, So we're only for uh, a certain amount of consumption or entertainment. We don't really have any real. So we become kind of this one dimensional uh, aspect of people's lives. Oh, we're just a rapper. Even if you go back to do the right thing, you know, they hated blacks, but their favorite athletes and musicians were all black. Oh, well, they're different. Or, you know, you can easily compartmentalize when it comes to us and, and our voices and what we have to say. And I think people need to understand that we are three dimensional. We're not just what we're saying or how we're delivering it and whatever else maybe listen to you know the substance of what we have to say because we've been crying out forever after police police beating us up the ghetto all of our conditions and things of that sort people they listen but they don't hear they're not actually taking in the information to where they can say okay well they're crying out that they're getting targeted by police or they're crying out that you know uh, policies have redlined communities to where we're not getting the same amount of education, uh, access to loans and housings and things of this sort. We've always been kind of getting this point across in our music. You look back at the public enemies, the X-Clans, the Cubes, even the N.W.A., you know, on and on. We've always been trying to tell these stories. But, you know, it's been getting heard and disseminated and all across and we're selling platinum rec- records and things like that. But are they listening? Have they given weight to what we've said? And to find ourselves decades later after after police came out, and we're still saying after police, that tells you right there that the substance of what we had to say have been glossed over and overlooked. So now we have to, you know, reevaluate. Okay, what's the power in our message? You know, uh, and you come across these cynical things where okay, we used to have conscious rap and now we just have strip club, rap, or whatever the case may be. So we go through these cyclical uh, points in music, and right now uh, we're kind of being dominated by, I guess, Atlanta, uh, that subculture of music that you would play in the, in the strip club or whatever the case may be. And that's kind of taken away a little bit from uh, the movement of our voices because I, can't, I couldn't give you a lyric from one of those songs, even though I listen to them, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, but if you if you took me to a public enemy or something like that, I can I can run things down to actually what was said or Tupac and, and things like that. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of both sides, you know, from an audience standpoint, can you listen to the stories being told? And from an artist standpoint, what are you disseminating with your message? You don't have to have all message type songs, have fun. Right. strip club song whatever the case may be but have some substance to go along with it you know there's there's a lot of different ways to tell a story and even when you're making somebody laugh or cry or get crunk there's still something that could stick with them you could put something in the hook or whatever the case may be there are always ways to make your point and music is a very strong medium for that uh so i think it's on incumbent on both sides to to kind of look at things differently
0: well that's actually a perfect segue uh, to getting you out of here. So, we're going to switch gears a little bit. There's something we like to do with our guests before we let them go. Um, ask them their top two top five lists. It's so going to be three. good. Three. So, the first one is your top five musicians of all time. We just talk about music. So, um, let's hear your top five musicians of all time.
2: Personally. So, I, I don't know what my top five says about me. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm weird. Um, <laughs> So I guess 1 and 1A, Prince and Michael. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael was my favorite in my youth, but as I've grown and appreciated musicality and everything that goes behind song making in the process, I've become more of a Prince fan. So Prince is 1, Michael is 1A. Okay. Uh, After that, it gets kind of all over the place. Uh, Frank Sinatra, Mm. Nina Simone, Mm. Sade. Sade got me through war. I I uh, mm. This was back when it was a it was a cassette tape. I played it so much it broke I had to buy another one. <laughs>
0: yeah
2: and number five, and I don't really like to put them at last, public enemy.
0: Mm. Yeah.
2: So that's that's my that's like, my top I five.
0: Like. I love, I love that list. I love that
2: list.
1: Now your the second one is your your top five athletes.
2: Athletes. Yes. Number one, Muhammad Ali. Yes. Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali's my icon, idol. Never got to meet him. He's a one person. If I met, I would make sure I take a picture. I've met all kinds of celebrities, athletes, actors. Didn't take a picture with him. Got a picture. Yeah. If, I, if I, yeah, if I would have, because it's kind of against the rules anyway. Yeah. Um, as a journalist, you can't take a picture with people, but I don't. I wouldn't care about the rules. If yeah. I would have ran across Muhammad Ali, I've taken a picture, go autograph. I don't care. Right. He's my number one. Uh, so after Muhammad Ali, um, I'll have to go with hmm. That's a tough list. Uh, Arthur Ashe, um, Quiet Tiger Woods. Uh, when he opens his mouth, I, I, I regret it. Uh, <laughs> Oh, um, Michael Jordan, mm. Kobe Bryant. And yeah, I have one more, right? That's five. That was that's five, five right there. Have that was five? five? Okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One more. Serena. Okay. All right, yep. Cool.
1: And, All and right. the last one, you know, one thing that, that's, that's brought us together is your love and our mutual love for travel. So oh, I love top, traveling. The top five places that you visited in your lifetime
2: um so top uh, used to be paris but it's been replaced by peru Mm. went to uh lima peru yeah lima peru and i went to machu picchu but also hiked rainbow mountain uh for listeners out there most people don't know they know about machu picchu but they don't know about rainbow mountain please google rainbow mountain it will change your life um it's 17,000 feet above sea level it's like uh, 30 below at the top when you get to the top the feeling of accomplishment that you will feel and the rush that you will feel for this appreciation of life and what god has created and uh just your place in the world um i don't think i'll ever be able to replace that uh, i did that last year um it was experience of a lifetime um so that's my number one now um second place is cuba yeah went to cuba finally two years ago um what can i say about cuba um just the people uh the food the history um and, and it feels like it's if you ever imagine getting in a time machine and going back in time yes. that's what yes. that's what going to cuba feels like the cars yes. the architecture um just even the mindset feels too right yeah, yeah.
1: walk around it,
2: it's, it's just it's 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 fantastic um so cuban i hate that we can't go back Yeah. Um, So I'm hoping that'll change because I definitely want to go back. Um, And as soon as, quote unquote, outside open back up, (laughs) uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Peru because they have a desert oasis called Chaka. It's literally a desert oasis. So surrounded by miles and miles of sand. There is a a, oasis in the middle of that. And we couldn't go because. Uh, there was weather conditions, and we couldn 't quite squeeze that into the Peru trip, so I literally want to go back for that um, so next on the list would be Colombia, and I almost relocated to Colombia. I love colombia um, it 's a perfect marriage of modern and throwback, mm-hmm. also technology towards um, uh, beautiful landscapes there's a uh, literary mountains in the in the in the distant view uh, things like that very strong focus on family your dollar goes very far um, so for listeners who've never been to Colombia I highly recommend visiting Colombia it's not what you think as far as Pablo Escobar and all these other things <laughs> yeah they, they've driven that out trust me it's gone yeah. uh, it's moved to Mexico um, and then lastly Italy um, I'm a foodie. Uh, I'm a self uh food porn, food porn addict. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, when I love to travel, the first thing I do is look up where I should go eat or what mm-hmm. restaurant I should visit or what's the cuisine and things like that. So Italy has the best food on the planet. I to always me. ask you when I go places. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I love Italy, the food, the people, um, fashion. I mean, whatever you're into, you'll find it in Italy. Um, so those are my, that's my top five.
0: That's a good list, man. Yo, seriously, thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been, this has been exceptional, man. I, I We have a lot of other questions that we probably could have asked you. Uh, we'll definitely, so we'll definitely
1: please, have to have you back on. We're
0: going to have to have you back hey, on Anytime, anytime. Yeah, Love what you crazy. guys are that's doing. Appreciate it, man. You have a good one, be safe, and uh, take care of that family of yours. All right, will do. Happy Juneteenth. Right, yeah, take care. All right, man. Peace. Man. <laughs> Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1, and we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Maurice Bob. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Meckinon Music and V is at Fis And don't forget to grab some Pilot Boys wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com.
1: Always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys
0: out. Pilot Boys, out. Let's go. Pilot boys we get on up.